0: The Upper Room is a series of messages that we've been preaching. This is the 10th week of it. We've been preaching John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. And we've said that what happened in the Gospel of John here was there was a transition. Jesus' ministry was very public until we get to John chapter 13, when they go to celebrate the Passover feast in Jerusalem. It all of a sudden turns very private, where Jesus focuses in on his disciples and prepares them for what is coming next, which would be the cross which would be the passion. That's where we pick up today, and the interesting thing that we see is that Jesus has a message to communicate to his disciples through all the, through all the pain and all the beauty of what they've experienced with them. And, and what happens in John 17 is very significant. I mean, there have been people that have preached 45 weeks of sermons on this chapter, like in their church. So you guys can be thankful that I'm not going to do that, but here's, here's what is going to happen. I began to pray a couple of weeks ago, God show us what you want for New City Church in John chapter 17. And that's what I'm going to be sharing with you today. We're going to give attention to what Jesus is praying. Jesus is with his disciples and he begins to pray. And it's 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 really one of the only times in the scriptures where we see the Trinity in action with one another. Jesus actually praying to the Father, so, so the disciples are seeing what Jesus' relationship with the Father is actually, they're hearing it, they're experiencing it. So it's this beautiful thing that we say. So our big idea of where we're going today is this, it's really centered on John seventeen three that we can know God, that, that we can know God. It's the time of year in Georgia where the burn band's lifted and you can burn stuff. I like to burn stuff like many other pyros that, that live in my neighborhood. I like to burn things. And so we have this big burn pile down there. And so yesterday morning I was walking out to put it out. And it had burned the, the day before and kind of still had some embers that were aflame. And I was walking out and I, I just felt like like what I wanted to share in John 17 wasn't yet full. And then the Lord brought this passage of Scripture to mind from John chapter 4. And if you know anything about John chapter 4, there's this instance with Jesus and his disciples, and they are, they're on the way somewhere, and they end up going through the land of Samaria. To the Jews, Samaria was off limits. The Samaritans were thought to be unclean, and so Jesus does something very intentional. He goes straight through Samaria with his disciples. He's like, hey, boys, we're going this way. He goes straight through Samaria, Then they get uh, in Samaria. I think it's in Sychar, and all of a sudden, Jesus is like, hey, it's time to eat eat lunch, boys. So they stop at this well, and they, they want to get some water, and he sends his disciples out to get some food in the city, and Jesus is here sitting on this well, middle of the day. No one draws water from the well in the middle of the day because it's hot. No one wants hot water when you've been walking, when you've been on a journey. Except for this one woman, this Samaritan woman that Jesus finds there. And Jesus just kind of cuts straight to the chase with her. And basically what's discovered is that Jesus knows way more about her than she thinks that he does. Jesus knows way more about this woman than she thinks she knows about herself. Which is really interesting. So Jesus asks this question. He says, says, go and get your husband. I want to meet him. And she's like, Jesus, I, I don't have any husbands. And she's kind of covering it up a little bit and Jesus is like, "Yeah, you're right, you don't have any husbands because you've been with five men and the man that you're with now is not your husband." And so all of a sudden there's this revelation of her sin. There's this discovery of who she is. She's all of a sudden found out. And and she's seen this story before the Samaritan woman. She's seen what happens at this point when people this is what this is why she's drawing water in the middle of the day because she's been found out and she's filled With shame. It's where people reject her and she goes back to her other lesser lovers. But here Jesus does something different. Jesus gives her an invitation to drink. He uses this metaphor of the water because they're around this well like he always does beautifully. He says, he invites her to drink of this water that will spring up as eternal life where she'll have no thirst anymore. She won't have to go back to those men. She won't have to go back to her life of sin jesus invites her in and she she receives the grace that comes from jesus and i share this with you because the thing that blows my mind is the gospel message that she goes out and shares it's interesting because you know a lot of times we go out we're like hey jesus died for your sins this is really good news you know what this woman's gospel message was come and meet a man who told me everything i ever did come and meet a man that told me everything that i've ever done before How is that good news for this woman? She's a prostitute. She's been sleeping with all these men. How is this good news? Because Jesus knew her. He knew who she really was, and he invited her into relationship. Jesus knew this woman, and this woman knew Jesus. And we see that the mission of God has always been about God bringing glory to himself, Through his creation, knowing him, acknowledging him in a redemptive relationship. And I think this is at the heart of what John 17 is talking about today. I need to set it up a little bit further before we get in to give you some context clues here. But in John 17, this is known as the high priestly prayer. Now, the reason this is known as the high priestly prayer is this. Hebrews 9 and 10 said that Jesus is the great high priest. So in Jewish culture, the high priest intercedes on behalf of the people, and he offers sacrifices for them for the forgiveness of sin. So that's really important that we understand that. So once a year there would be this, this day called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, where the people would come out and they would fast all day, and, and, and the high priest would go in and offer a sacrifice. And he would offer it in, the, in this place called the Holy of Holies. So in the temple, there's like, imagine kind of three rings. There's like the outer courts, then there's then there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies, which is in the middle, which is this is where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of God dwells among his people. So the priest, the high priest would go in one time a year. And part of the the preparation process for the priest to go in would be that he would he would begin praying, uh, offering sacrifices for his sin. He would get himself clean so that he could go and mediate for the people. This was crucial. You know, it's funny, they would even, at one point they even started tying bells on his clothing. So he would go into the Holy of Holies and so when he was moving, moving around, they would still have a little glimmer of hope. Okay, he's not died in God's presence. I still hear a little jingle bells going on. And then at one point later in the history of the church, they, they began tying a rope around the high priest's ankle as he would go into the, the Holy of Holies. That way if he, if, he, if, he didn't, if he had sin he didn't repent of and he died in the presence of the Lord, no one could go in because they would die, right? So they would just, they would just pull him out. But seriously, this is what they did. It's, it's really interesting. So the, the Holy of Holies is how God's presence resided with His people. Now, now the interesting thing is, is that when Jesus dies on the cross, there's this, this is a verse in Matthew 27 that blows my mind. And, and Matthew 27, 51 says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the, from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. He's talking about the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where God dwelt. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, the holy of holies came among the people of God. God was no longer distant. He he was with us. God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And so the holy of holies is among us. And we can know God. So this prayer, I tell you that because this prayer is considered Jesus in the Holy of Holies with His Father. That, that's what you're hearing here. It's the prayer from the Holy of Holies with His Father before the entire course of how we relate to God would change forever. So the question that I want you to consider today as we dig in further into John chapter 17 is this. What keeps, what, what gets in the way of you really knowing God. Because there's a difference here. There's a difference. You can know about God, right? And then you can know God. You can know about God, and you can know God. So my question to you is what keeps you from really knowing God? Because you see that this woman at the well, her greatest ministry to the world, her testimony, her gospel that she shared came from her being known by God and her knowing God. Now, not just knowing, okay, that's Jesus. He's going to be a Messiah. You know, he's the Messiah. He's, I can tell you're coming. You've come from God. I mean, that's, that's knowing about God. But but when she came and she shared the message, hey, come meet this man. He told me everything I've ever done. And people are like, but he's God. He didn't stiff on me. He didn't shun me. Come and meet him. The invitation is ours that we can know God. So here's what I see in John 17, 1 through 12. I see three themes predominantly that, that really all come back to the cross. The cross is never mentioned in John 17, but in some way it's mentioned in every single word of John chapter 17. And so what we see is that through the cross is where we can know God and redemption, glory, and relationship all collide here. And those are going to be the three themes that we look at. So redemption, glory, in relationship, We're going to really spend a lot of time on a relationship. So let's look at number one, redemption. So the real work of redemption is the cross. It's, it's what overlays this entire prayer, that, like I've just said. So, so Jesus, in John 17, 4, says this. Father, he's praying to the Father. He said, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So according to what we've read in, in John chapter 3, the Father is the one that sent the Son. He's given the, he's given the Son work to do. He's given Him the work of going and making Himself known, atoning for sin, so that we can know God. And it's interesting that later on the cross, Jesus, just after this, Jesus would be on the cross, and He would utter these three words that refer to the work that's being talk, talked about right here in John 17. He would say, it is finished. Father, the work is finished. Mission accomplished, Father. I have won your people back. I have paid the price for sin. It is finished. They can know you now through me. So Jesus is speaking of redemption in this in this past tense kind of way. It's a strange thing because you see Jesus and the Father speaking like the cross has already happened. Because you know God is outside of the bounds of time. And so Father and Son are speaking in past tense. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In real time, he hadn't accomplished the work yet. He was still in the upper room. He hadn't went to the cross yet. He speaks in past tense as he's talking about redemption because he knows it's good. He knows the work that that he's been given to you. And, And later on in verses 11 and 12 and 17, he would say, and I am no longer in the world, but they, my disciples, they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. There's this theme of unity that, that the Father wants the disciples to experience this unity that the Father and Son has. And he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. So part of this work of redemption is the keeping power of Jesus Christ. The fact that he's the one that keeps the sheep. In John 6, the scriptures say that I have that lost none of which all that you've given me. It's Jesus that keeps us. We, we don't keep, we don't, we don't keep ourselves in relationship with God. It's Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit that keeps us in relationship with God. It's this work of redemption. This week I was reading, and the story goes like this. There were a gathering of friends at an English estate, and there was this near tragedy that occurs. There's this little boy was playing, and he strayed into these deeper waters, and he begins to cry out for help. And all of a sudden, this gardener comes in and he rescues. He plunges in the water and he rescues this young man. The little kid's name was Winston Churchill. And his grateful parents go to the gardener, the servant that they have at their house, and they say, hey, what can we do to reward you? I mean, you've saved our son's life. We'll give you anything. And he hesitates and he says, I wish my, my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. He's really smart, but there's no way we can afford to send him through school. And Winston's parents say, hey, we'll see to it that that can happen. And years later, Winston Churchill was the prime minister of England. And he got pneumonia and he got deathly sick. He got so sick that they sought out the best doctor in all of England to come and to care for this man. And his name was Dr. Alexander Fleming. This was the man who discovered and developed penicillin. He was also the son of the gardener who saved young Winston Churchill from drowning that day. You see, it's coming full circle. And listen to what Churchill remarks later after he heals and and, and gets better. He says, rarely has one man owed his life to the same person twice. This is a picture of redemption because God has not only made us a desired relationship with us, but when we broke that fellowship through sin, he sent Jesus to redeem us all over again. This is the love of the Father coming through the Son. This is the work of redemption that Jesus is praying about right here. The work that he had to accomplish. So the entire purpose of Jesus' mission on earth was that we might be brought back. The book of Mark says he came to seek and to save the lost. And how would he do that? We would do that through the cross. All because God can now be known. Second thing, we see this aspect of restored glory. And, and the question that I ask when I'm, when I'm coming to because glory is mentioned like six times in the first five verses. So anytime there's a repetition of the same word, we need to look at that. We need to dig deeper into what's going on there. Why would Jesus mention glory so much? So how does Jesus redeem us? How has he brought us back? How has he brought redemption to us? Listen to John 17, 1 and 2, and then verse 5 as well. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven. And said, Father, the hour has come. Here's the word. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to whom you have given Him. And then in verse 5 he says the same thing nearly. He says, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Listen to that. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There was something that happened for this mission to go forward. Jesus had to go undercover, All right, He had to become an undercover agent in the world. So he had to come in flesh. Before this, think about this. Jesus, before this, Jesus was not a man like you and I are men and women. Philippians says that he took up flesh and he dwelt among us. The scriptures say that that he became one of us to redeem us. So, Jesus' glory, his weightiness, his significance that he had with the Father had to be concealed for the mission to be accomplished. And you think about what, what the scriptures say in Romans 1, where Paul is talking about how, how humanity has exchanged the glory of God for lies. He talks about that all through Romans 1. And then we see the picture of Jesus that has exchanged all the glory of heaven, he's exchanged all of that to become a man. So he's done the exact opposite of what we've done. So Jesus is praying that the Father would show them who he really is. That's what he's praying. Father, show them who you really are, what you've really done, and what you've really done in me. Show them the compassion and justice. Lift the veil. Let them see me as I am. And as Philippians, like I mentioned a second ago, says, since he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, kenosis. He was a self-emptying of what he did there. And he, and he took on the form of a servant. And he was born in the likeness of men. All to do the work of redemption, to accomplish the mission of the Father so that we could be known and that we could know God. That's why he did the work. I, I love what Randy Pope says, the pastor of Permanent Church. He says, we're all in this journey for glory. We, we all want glory. We all want weightiness. We all want significance we see that the journey for glory for man which is what we're after we want to be significant it's inextricably linked to humility Jesus redefines what glory is for humanity when he becomes a man because glory is linked to humility and I, and I had to ask myself these questions this week okay Ryan you want to be noticed you you want to be you want people to know who you are. Maybe 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 you struggle with the same thing. You want it's really hard for you to kind of conceal yourself, and, and to just serve like Jesus did. We've got, we've got growth to do in humility. Okay, Ryan, does it bother you when someone else doesn't acknowledge the effort that you put forth? And maybe some of you guys are kind of shaking your head. Yeah, I can totally. if I'm honest, I struggle with the same thing. Ryan, do you get frustrated with people who maybe have a better lifestyle with you? Do you get frustrated when you feel like Jesus is not rewarding your obedience? Do you get frustrated in those moments? I've got an issue with glory. I think glory is something that I can attain. Glory is a gift from God as we humble ourselves and we push down lower still. The life of following Jesus is a life of going unnoticed so that He can shine through our lives. I love what Andrew Murray says in his book, Humility. He says this, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret And I am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above me is trouble. This work of humility is how the glory of God shines through our life. And this is exactly what Jesus modeled when He went to the cross. When He took up flesh and became, He walked among us. He came so near to us so that we can know God. And lastly, we're going to settle on this point here. This this idea of relationship, we see... John 17, 3, where Jesus says that eternal life, you ever have the question, what is eternal life? Well, it's knowing God. John 17, 3 is the definition of what eternal life, it is knowing God, and we see that the cross is once again bleeding through all of this. How would I know you? Well, it's because of the cross that I'm about to endure. And Jesus, in John 17, 1 through 5, a lot of people say Jesus is praying for himself, and Really, He's not praying for Himself in the way that we pray for ourselves. He's praying that the work that He's done will be applied to us. He's praying that the work would go forth. That's what Jesus is praying about there. In John 17, 2 and 3, He says this, Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom all you have given Him, the Father has given Him His children. And this is eternal life. Listen to this right here, that they know, that they know You the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they know you. That word, gnosko, is it's this different type of knowing. It's, it's not like uh, being able to recite memory work for your homework for a test. It's not this head knowledge thing. It's this, it's this they would know you. They would, they would know you like the, the woman at the well knew you. They, they would know you is what he's talking about here. And the interesting thing about this is, is it's not this one-time. It's not this. It's not this past tense, momentary thing that they. Oh, yeah, I know about God. It would. It would be that they would keep on knowing you is actually the way that the Bible reads there. That they would keep on knowing you, Father. That that would. That would be what this work that I'm going to do would accomplish. They would keep on knowing you. They would keep on walking with you. John 1:17 is the only place in the Gospel of John where we see these same words used altogether. And it's where the Scriptures say this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus has made Him known so that we can be known and we can know God and have eternal life. There's this unity that we experience. So what does this actually mean? I mentioned this earlier. There's a vast difference between us knowing about God and us Knowing God, like knowing Him deep in our bones. Knowing about someone was what the law of Moses gave us. It told us about the character of who God was, but it was insufficient in its ability to fully reveal who God is. So what does God do? God more fully reveals Himself in Jesus fully to us by showing us His exact character. This is why it's so important for us to understand that Jesus is is God, because the woman at the well was with God. She's with God. You and I, because the veil has been torn, the Holy of Holies has been opened up, we are with God, and God dwells with us. And our joy, like we talked about last week, can be full because of that. And there's a vast difference between the two. I was out in L.A. this past week, and I had an interesting, it was an interesting time. I was out for a, a pastor's meeting uh, out there in Pasadena at Fuller Theological Seminary. And we were driving down the road for dinner on, uh, it was a Tuesday night, and we're going down Sunset Boulevard. It's beautiful. Traffic's terrible, but it's great. So we're driving down, and my friend, I have two friends in the car, I'm in the back seat. Friend Mark is driving, my friend Andrew, who was the best man at my wedding from Kentucky. Like, we just bleed blue together. Driving down Sunset Boulevard, and all of a sudden, Andrew just shouts out this cry, and he's like, There's Julius Randall! And, and like he, he, he says, Mark, stop the car. He jumps out of the car on Sunset Boulevard and starts chasing Julius Randle down. You're asking, who's Julius Randle? Julius Randle was a guy that played for the Kentucky Wildcats basketball team that was one of our best players a couple years ago and was drafted into the NBA. And so he plays for the Lakers now. Uh, he got hurt last year. So, but anyway, so he jumps out of the car. And in a moment of panic, I'm torn between two worlds. It's like, I'm a Kentucky fan. I'm not really as bold as Andrew. So I just got out of the car. So at Sunset Boulevard, we're like fighting through traffic going over to try to hunt down Julius Randall, And so we, we get out and we go into this store. It's like this, it's this strange store that I guess really wealthy people shop at. It looks like nothing on the outside. There's no sign. And there's just like a couple racks of clothes and some shoes. And I'm like, this is a waste of space. Walk in, Julius Randall is there. And Andrew, my friend, he's a little more boisterous than I am. And he, he walks in and he says... Julius, what's up, bro? And he goes in and starts, like, shaking his hand. And, and he's, like, he's like, hey, man, we're from Kentucky. I think he expected, like, Julius Randall to be like, oh, Kentucky. <laughs> and Julius Randall just kind of looks at him, He kind of takes a step back, like, who are they? You know, security. You know, he's kind of like, what's going on with these guys? And so then, you know, we can see him kind of backing up. So Andrew steps in a little bit further, and I'm just kind of watching. I'm just kind of, you know, taking a back seat to this and just kind of enjoying what's going on here. And he begins to, to uh, it, it kind of felt like one of those moments where like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Christmas Vacation, but when Uncle Eddie shows up for the Christmas party and everybody's kind of like, oh, Uncle Eddie's here. It kind of felt like that's how Julius Randall saw us when we said we we're from Kentucky. Oh, it's, Uncle Eddie's here. Okay. It's kind of a strange thing. But then we proceed to feed him with knowledge that we know about him. We begin to say, hey, we're huge fans, man. Really loved what you and Calipari did. At, at the university, hey, I'm sorry about the injury last year, I know you're really bummed out, you got injured in the first game, and that was a huge bummer, how do you like LA, how's the weather out here, where do you live, I mean, how, how are things going, and, and Julius is just kind of like, he continues to back up, and we, but we feel like we know Julius Randall is the problem, right, we feel like we know Julius Randle, and I've got actually a picture of me and Julius that we kind of snuck there. I mean, I'm six foot tall. I mean, you can see he is a, he's, a, he's a big man. And so this is the, look at the store. I mean, there's like nothing in there. And Julius Randall's just kind of going through and shopping. And, and so we, we could tell that he wasn't really wanting to go out to dinner with us or anything. So we said, hey, can we at least get a picture since we've created this awkward environment? And I share this story with you because the way that we treated Julius Randall was like he knew us. We didn't know us at all. We didn't know him at all. We just knew about him. And some of us know Jesus Like I know Julius Randle. Some of us know Jesus like I know Julius Randle. And why is that a problem? Because Julius Randle doesn't know me, he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't, and I don't know who he is. All I know is his public life, whatever's shown on TV. That's the only thing that I know about him. But Jesus invites us deeper still. If Jesus was Julius Randle. He would invite us out to dinner. We would have had a great time. We would have got to know us. It would have been this beautiful thing. But that's not how things worked out. Some of us know God that same way, and we. Th- this is not what John seventeen three is talking about. John seventeen three is talking about this. The, the word for know in the Bible is often this intimate term. That's that's really a, a sexual relationship between husband and wife, and. And it's this, it's, this, it's, this, it's this intimate relationship where people are fully known. There's full disclosure and there's perfect love. And that is exactly what God desires with His children. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. And as the church, our deepest desire would be that we would know God. And there's an effort on our part to actually to surround ourselves with the means of getting to know God, which would be the word and prayer and God's people. That's how, we, that's how we get to know God. God reveals Himself to us through His Word, through prayer, through when we receive the sacraments. God reveals Himself to us more fully through His people. It's not, it's not, a, it's not good enough for us to know God through someone else. There's no, the, the veil has been torn, meaning there's no longer a mediator. The Holy of Holies is among us. The Holy of Holies... The Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwells, resides in our hearts. God is near to us. I was thinking of a way to illustrate this. And, and one of the, the most beneficial things for me is just being seeing that, that guys, like, we are a part of the tightest knit unity in all of the world. Like, think about this. Like, if, if, there, was, if there was the Father, the Father was like this big circle, right? So that, that was the Father. And then, you know, in John 17, we see that the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. And then we see also in John 14 and some other places that the Holy Spirit, there's this Trinitarian language that they are all one together. And then we see here in John 17 that, that, that the wish of Jesus, the will of God would be that the believers would be in the Father, as He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. So there's this unity that exists. And, and I think about it when I see it like this, I think, okay, that's good. That kind of paints the picture. But it's not fully what God is saying because really, as believers, we get to experience the full presence of who God is. So it's like, it's like the Father is this, if we, we, if we could define the Father in a, in a circle, and then the Son is fully God, and, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. And believers, this journey of sanctification for us is coming closer and closer to God, being more known and more known and more known until eventually we'll be glorified and in a perfect state, a perfect relationship, not broken, not distorted by sin, where we will be with the Father forever and we will be known this is eternal life that you would know him. Eternal life is the inheritance for knowing God. Eternal life is not what we're after. We're after the Father. Eternal life is a perk because we know him. So my question today to you is this. Do you know him? Do you know, do you know God this way or do you know him like I know Julius Randall? How do you know him? Because he invites us deeper still. And so if you would say, hey man, I really don't know God. I, I, I don't have that relationship where I seek his presence daily. I, I don't feel like he loves me. Then I would say, the invitation is to come. To come and to meet him. Because the cross was so that you could come near. Just like the woman at the well. Come meet a man that told me everything I ever did. And I'll tell you why that's good news. So the invitation is to come. Let's pray together. Father, We thank you that we can be fully known by you and that we can live. (laughs) And that your grace overcomes all of our discrepancies. And we don't have to hide from those discrepancies, from that sin, from that distortion of glory that we've taken away from you. But the invitation is to be one with you. And I'm thankful that Jesus prayed about this so that we could know you. And I'm thankful that we get to see the heart of what the Holy of Holies is like through John 17. I pray that you would would increase in us an affection for knowing you. That in New City Church, we would see that our greatest ministry, our our greatest pursuits in ministry should be first toward you. And then everything else just kind of comes from that. So Father, give us hearts that seek you. That seek first the kingdom of God. That seek to have our joy full in you. And Father, may everything else kind of fall behind that. Because we can know you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.